Um, Dr. Wilhite, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, we, we've had some excitement about this. People interested to hear what you have to say, so we appreciate I know grades are due today, is that right? And semester yeah. finishing up, and so plenty going right now. Yeah, I got mine in this morning, so uh, I'm, I'm free. All right, all right. Now, now, that's, now it's the student's problem, right? They can either <laughs> gnash their teeth or rejoice. And <laughs> I'm not going to even look at my email for 48 hours. <laughs> smart move, smart move. Uh, well, the question we started asking everybody here to get us going, kind of our icebreaker is, what is a hack, a practice, something you or you and your family doing that is kind of helping you thrive through this time? Yeah, um, well, this is the boring answer. My wife is really, really good about being intentional about family stuff, and she had us set up these kind of goals uh, that we each had personally. So, I mean, the boring answer is things like routine, working in, exercise every day, you know, just scheduled meals and things like that. She, so she's been, she's been really the great kind of glue that held our family together. And even though we've, we've had our moments of cabin fever, we, we've had a actually really nice family time. So I have two teenagers, high schoolers, um, and they've been great. The other thing that the, the slightly more fun answer is uh, almost every week, we have uh, found a way to get out of the house and go either to a state park or some outside venue. And, um, you know, we just pack a small picnic, we take the dog and it's just, you know, a change of scenery and getting outdoors and enjoying nature. Um, you know, we actually enjoy time together as a family and with teenagers, that's not always guaranteed. So that's, that's, that's been very life giving. And the teenagers are hanging in there. They are. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, it helps that all the other parents are as strict or worse than we are. So we're not the bad cops here, but um, <laughs> yeah, they, uh, my kids have been great through this. Well, that's good. Yeah. We, we have a, a big backyard and that, in fact, uh, my wife contacted your wife and she gave us plenty of landscaping tips. So uh, my practice has been landscaping uh, thanks to Amber Wilhite and some uh, good advice she's given us and help, but uh, it's nice to be able to get outside. It is a, a, uh, a privilege, that's for sure. Yeah, she's giving you a lot of work. Sorry, if I weren't <laughs> quarantined, I'd come help you. But you know, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Real, real convenient. Real convenient that that's quarantine is there, isn't it? Yeah. The, uh, I mean, we we have more than six feet. We you could come over, David. <laughs> 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 Bowden Hammer said the same thing. That's just the way it goes. Um, well, let's jump in. Um, as a uh, patristics expert studying the early church is patristic still the term or is the term changed is my lingo outdated that's a that's a tricky question uh, yes patristics is sort of the formal term for it um, there are a lot of people who want to redefine it in terms of something like early christian studies or even more strictly historical you'd call it something like uh, late antiquity yeah uh, but yeah when you say patristics it has to do with that. Uh, I mean, the Latin root there is pater, father. And so you call them the fathers, not just out of a sort of paternalistic yeah. sense of authority, but out of the sense that, well, they were all men who were the official teachers of the church. So yeah, early, early church, early Christianity, and especially the early theological teachers. That's my area. And that takes you how far into church history, generally speaking? Well, again, it's a, you can argue about that. Generally speaking, around 400 uh, is about as far as I really work in. Um, you sort of have to dabble into the later, you know, 800, even to the even to the end of the millennium. But it's it's primarily the first 400 years that I focus on. Okay, that's helpful. Just setting the stage for those that weren't uh, blessed enough to take the class with Dr. David Wilhite. 
Yeah. Um, or like me who took it 20 years ago and don't really remember a lot of the specifics, still working on some of it. Um, so just general question, get us going. Did the early church experience anything like what we're going through? What was that like? What are some points of connection between that time and ours? Yeah. Um, well, in, in a general sense, the early church is often thought of as an underground movement. And so, yeah, they, I think there's uh, definite points of contact. Um, but now that I want to give the first caveat that the early church wasn't always like hiding in the catacombs. I mean, Christians weren't always persecuted all the time. That, that only sort of happened on a few major occasions. Uh, otherwise, it was small, you know, sporadic um, persecutions. But the one that really stands out as something like what we're experiencing now is one of the great plagues that struck uh, the Roman Empire. Um, you know, there's one around 160, there was another one around 250, and then a couple later on. Um, and both Christian and non-Christian sources comment on the Christian response to it. Because, you know, the kind of Greco-Roman response is, well, this must be of the gods, it must be punishment. So um, when you don't want to con be contaminated, they didn't think of germs, but they thought of like evil spirits that could contaminate you. Don't be near the contagion of people who, who uh, contracted this plague. and so. Uh, literally, uh, people are pushing their loved ones out into the street to die. They're not burying them. They're not caring for them if they're sick. Um, and the 250 plague is actually named the Cyprianic plague, uh, and it's named after Saint Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage in North Africa. Uh, and he has a work where he, uh, it still survives that you can read, where he tells the Christians, we're different. We're not afraid of death. Our job is to go out into the streets and care for the sick, care for the dying, um, and it, yeah, it, that many, even, even secular historians point to those kinds of events to say how um, momentous it was in the change of history, that Christians were the ones who stepped onto the world scene and were willing to, you know, help and do things that others would not do during that plague. And the Cyprianic plague is its name in early church studies, or like if I studied the history of pandemic in general, it would be known as the Cyprianic plague. That's right. If you're studying medical history, Roman history, it would be called that. And that, that's largely because of the response or because he left a record of it that is traceable or a little bit of both? Yeah, yeah I guess both. I mean, so it's, it's, um, it's noteworthy both in the Christian sources and in the non-Christian sources that Christians are responding. Now, Cyprian is one of the most famous Christians of his time. He wrote specifically on this plague. And so everyone you know looking back in the history market by him by his response um because even the non-christians at that time took note of his leadership and the christian response man that's interesting so i mean as you study as you think as you look at what's going on what are some of the lessons you think we learn i mean there's some obvious ones there but take what what lessons can we learn today from their responses yeah um well, you know, the tricky thing with my, my, my course in early Christianity and my subject is um, th there's really something like a one-to-one -one lesson that can be learned. You know, I, it's not like you can take my class notes and go teach a youth lesson on Wednesday night or preach a sermon on Sunday morning. But I do think there are deep um, connections and values that are shared and le lessons that can be learned in that sense. I mean, so, for example, they didn't understand germs. Um, in their day, the most Christian thing you could do was to go to someone who was sick and simply give them water and shelter and care. Um, and that actually saved a lot of people's lives, even without any medical help. Um, 
today, the most Christian thing we can do seems to be one of not trying to contaminate others, right? So the sort of, um, the differences are, are obvious. Um, but at the same time, I think, that, like, for example, some of the values that would be crossover to today is, you know, Cyprian and the early writers had a real big emphasis on the home and the family as a microcosm of the church. So Acts 2 through 4, where everyone shares all things in common, we're brothers and sisters, uh, we're one family. And so it was a no-brainer for them to have home church uh, and meet house to house, and you can have communion in your home. And again, it's a bigger network than a nuclear family, but still those, that sort of model of how to respond in times like this, they could still do church in times like this. And then the other side of that coin though, is not everyone was um, called to be a member of a family. So the, the call to celibacy was, was lauded at that time. You have, even though you don't have the full-blown monastic movements that come later, you have a, a strong emphasis on the calling of people to be virgins and uh, widows and 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 singles and those people did you know they, i mean the the sources talk about that they didn't have to fear death they didn't have to fear what would happen to them if they lost their property or i mean they could march out and be bold as martyrs they could march out into the streets and help the dying um you know they had an army of people um willing to go out and do these things and so today you know i think the church has not done so great on that second part, at least the Protestant church, you know, how to minister to singles in general, um, much less how to instill the, the value of singleness and the call to that. Um, but we have, I think, at least, you know, we've done pretty good about emphasizing the importance of family and teaching our children and caring and protecting of them. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of values we share, a lot of lessons that can be learned at that kind of general level. Yeah, and in general, there was a, a response to be involved that set itself apart from the larger cultural response that was important and key. Yeah. So if the Cyprianic plague or, or something else required them to shelter in place, you know, in 262 or something, you know, 249, mm -hmm. um, well, how, how would they have responded? Yeah. Um, well, you know, they don't have Facebook, they don't have Zoom, they don't have an ability to connect with their wider network. The, the, the cathedral that gathers on Sunday morning is not, would not be eligible, uh, available to them at all. And yet, um, you know, the pattern of worship for them seems to be that every day at sunrise and sunset, there would be a Christian gathering. Um, and that's probably based out of the home. But again, it's not just a nuclear family. If you, if you were wealthy enough to own a home, you probably had patron-client relationships, so others would come around, and, and the church seems to just mirror that. So there seems to be one house leader who, even, even when you have full-flown bishops and things in the 250s and the 300s, it seems pretty easy for them to still gather together in small house-to-house -house gatherings and figure out how to do church. Um, so even if they're isolating, I'm assuming they can still gather in those small networks, um, you know, 15 to 20 people. Um, and then if there's shelter in place uh, for those sorts of family networks, as I said, you have these, you know, people who, who are called a singleness, are called a celibacy. Um, I don't think they would necessarily feel the, the need to shelter in place. I think they would be on the front lines volunteering at the hospitals, volunteering at those, you know, the, the, the bread lines, handing out food. And 
so I think that there's sort of a there I'm probably assuming more than what most of us think like today as far as evangelicals the assumption in the early church is there there is a calling to be a husband a wife a parent and there's also a calling to be single and some people have the the, the calling and the freedom of singleness to go out and do and risk and, and devote a whole life that you know that we don't quite understand today that don't we don't quite value and promote today so that's where i think their shelter in place would sort of fall in two tiers interesting that's helpful um you know i i was i'm just man so many good thoughts i was commenting on a, a thread of a bunch of pastors yesterday and, and it was kind of on if you have to require people to wear masks and socially distance what is it what is the ethic of requiring certain things for people to come to church? You've got to be well, you've got to be a certain age. And it was kind of go. And one person just made the comment that he didn't see any biblical example of um, telling the weak to stay home because they don't meet certain requirements. And I said, well, it feels to me the, the example may come from the other. You don't see examples of that because the strong would never meet at the expense of the weak, that they would not put the weak, quote unquote weak, quote unquote strong in that position that they had to risk themselves to be there. Again, we could argue that back and forth. Um, so it seems like you're saying there is a sense of calling for the whole church to be involved together, perhaps different tiers, but for some of the quote unquote strong to, to not sacrifice themselves, but to live sacrificially in order that others might be uh, made well, taken care of, shown the love of Christ. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, again, sort of like a bedrock assumption for early Christians, um, that's, that's different mindset than what we have today, but it's still a value I think we can retrieve that we, that we uh, deep down share. It's just in, in different contexts, it looks different. In the early church, even though there is not a, a widespread everyday persecution going on, there is an everyday threat of persecution. The Christians were suspect. The Christians were seen uh, uh, as, as suspect at best, traitors at worst. Um, and so, I mean, to be a Christian is to sign up to be a martyr. And whether, I mean, all Christians were really, true Christians were thought to be martyrs. You should be faithful unto death. And whether or not that means you're like St. Ignatius, who was thrown to the lions, or whether you're like, I mean, John the Apostle, who, who died of natural causes in his old age, all are called to die to self and live for others. And so I think that's sort of the mindset that the early Christians just have as a, as a, as a no brainer, right? If what, whatever the decision is, what does it mean for our church, for the good of the community to live for others? That's how we're going to make our decision. So we don't have an army of monks and nuns. Um, how do you think the church might respond today? And, and singleness is a, is a much different thing, as is family. Uh, work is a different thing, and, and our connections are, are different. Um, uh, how do you think the church might respond today differently? Yeah, um, well, you're right. We, so we're, we're seeing this so different that, um, you know, in, in, in the churches that I know and sort of the evangelical Baptist ethos I grew up with, um, every good little Christian boy and girl will grow up to be a good Christian mommy and daddy. Right. And um, so I think one of the things that we're probably going to learn from this already is that we never really have done a good job ministering to singles or messaging a biblical call to singleness. Um, 
So we're probably discovering that way too painfully in, in this is, um, you know, for some of us uh, who have kids, the, the house is way too crowded, but there are a lot of people out there where the, crowd, the house is way too lonely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's somewhat hypocritical for evangelicals to suddenly start valuing singleness when today a call to celibacy is a call to loneliness, right? I mean, who, who's going to care for a celibate person when they get to be elderly and, um, and in need? Whereas for the early church, a call to singleness is a call to a community, right? There were, I mean, again, it's the time of Cyprian, you don't have the full-blown monastic houses, but you already have people living together in shared intentional communities. Um, Even in the time of the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy talks about, you know, widows who are widows indeed, who are put on the list and there's care for them. They seem to be in some community together. So You know, I think that one of the things we probably are going to have to learn from this is how to care for the singles among us in our churches and how to promote that and create space and ministries for them. Um, We should have an army of people that, you know, if I can't go down to the front lines and hand out masks, I'd be willing to stay home. And my wife makes masks, actually, when there was a call for that. We, We as a family could contribute one thing and we could also enable others you know who are going out and and doing things like that so i mean i think we sort of have a paradigm for how this could happen we all know our church we've all seen churches where people go on short-term mission trips and those of us who can't go because we don't have that much vacation time because of commitment to work and things like that well we pony up and pay for their mission trip and, and donate to that so yeah we don't have this army of people who who can live um a completely selfless life um but I think there's some lessons here we could learn where who knows, maybe that I think we're going to learn a lot of things from quarantine. I think we're going to learn how to, uh, you know, Facebook live every worship service, but I think we're also going to want our worship service back in, in the flesh. And we're going to learn better how to minister to singles and how to minister in times of crisis and things like that. So, yeah, I think the early church has values that we can retrieve. How to do so is what I think we're all trying to learn. Which some of that has been recovered in the new monasticism movement and things like that. It's just been a little on the the edge of maybe mainstream evangelicalism, not really center point where every First Baptist, First, Met, First Methodist, you know, church has a, a movement within itself like that. That this may be a time for that to come to to center stage. And, you know, and I'm struck that um, man, while that the family dichotomy is very helpful. We might also be facing now um, a call along vocational lines, you know, that there are, I know, families with nurses, doctors, you know, the term is thrown around of kind of essential workers, which is kind of funny to see who's essential in a, you know, in the economy of empire a little bit. Um, it's interesting, but there are helping professions that it seems to be people are approaching this with similar calling of putting themselves at risk. Um that is an army mobilized just along a little bit different lines. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the new monastic movement. Um, I, I'm a big fan of it. The, the the difficulty in talking about it is it's so across the board. There, There's probably everyone would agree there's new monastic movements, plural. And so some of them sort of get sweep, swept up and uh, get labeled as only a social justice movement and others get labeled as sort of a, only a homeschooler classic education movement. And, so I, I don't know what the future of this looks like, but um, if you'd like, I can 
I don't know if you'd like to maybe post as a follow-up to this. I've got bibliography I've tried to keep up on this because, you know, as um, one philosopher tried to say that um, in, in modernity and in the wake of whatever is after modernity or post-modernity, uh, he claimed that we've entered a, a new dark ages and that his, his solution was, he said, we need a new St. Benedict because Benedict started the Benedictine order and the Western, you know, monks saved Western civilization is the idea. He says, we need a, a new St. Benedict to lead us through these new dark ages. Um, and there were Christians in this new monastic movement who kind of took up that charge and says, okay, we're not the old monastics where we have to take a vow of celibacy. We can be families. We can, but somehow or another, we're going to reclaim these central values of living intentionally, living toward our calling. And you're right, we're, we're set apart from the world. Um, and so, yeah, they, they, they took that new St. Benedict and took it real literally and made a new monastic monasticism. I don't know exactly what will come out of that, those movements, but I do think, I think there will be a day where every, as you say, every First Baptist Church will have its new monastic, um, it won't be called that in the First Baptist Church, but we'll have our special forces Christians that um, live out some of these principles. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm trying to choose which to, which of those thoughts I want to pursue in that. We could do this for you and I could do this for two hours, but uh, we don't have that much time. Um, I'm sure there'll be some questions on that. I know a couple questions have been asked that we'll get to here in a minute. Um, any other just principles, kind of shifting a little bit, any other just principles or values you can think of that speak to the church today? And especially in times of like quarantine and yeah. Um, well, again, I, I, this is partly my own, as much my interest uh, as anything, but I, I, you know, I miss real church. Facebook church has been great because we're in our pajamas and we make brunch afterwards with the kids. And that's, we really cherish this time, but man, I want to get back to churches where we can hug people and be tangible and incarnational. And so um, where my interest, I think what I say, it, it overlaps with the early church is I don't think that's just something selfish to me or unique to our experience here. I think there's something innate to the Christian life and Christian practice that is tangible, incarnational, and the early church used the word sacramental. Um, I think that if, uh, if, if we all realize that something is not quite right about doing online church, like it's great, we can do it, and maybe we'll always do it for people who are shut in or, or can't make it on a certain Sunday or who are out of town. That's great, we can expand our reach with online, but I think we are gonna learn that something incarnational is still, you know, in, invaluable, if not necessary, to real church. And so, I don't know just how sacramental we will get in response to this, but I definitely plan on eating a donut every time I walk in the church doors from now on. And I definitely plan on shaking hands and patting people in the back as soon as it's safe to do so. And beyond that, I think we might even, you know, think more about the importance of sights and smells and taste and touch and why not have Lord suffer more often? Why not move more into an embodied way of thinking about our faith? And the early church was really good about thinking along those lines. So if we do move in that direction, I think there's a lot we could learn from that. Did there, as best you know, or best can be discovered, did the experience of church, did the practices of church, I know the Cyprianic plague wasn't a three-month thing. I mean, it was a like a decade, multi, or like 12 years, right? Or something like that. 
Uh, I Wikipedia that. I don't know that off the top of my brain. That was just quick research. No, you're a true uh, grad. You learned yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, did it did it shift their expression of church much, or did it just incorporate, or were they flowing out of their identity and new people were incorporated, but their practices largely continued? I mean, it's a dip. It's not apples and apples, I guess, comparing. Right. Uh, no, I don't. Um, okay, so the, the sources are real slim in the first 300 years. We actually have a, a, a surprisingly helpful number of sources when it comes to describing early Christian worship. But it's, um, this won't surprise you, it's, it's sort of bare bones. You have, you know, the, the, the church starts with a sort of call to worship. It's usually a prayer. It starts with, uh, involves, you know, spoken prayers for the people. It involves spoken confessions of sin. And by the way, it was in front of everybody. It wasn't in a little closet. That, that's later Irish Catholicism that has a separate confessional. Um, you would have the preaching of the word, sometimes by multiple people. And you would have songs and hymns and things like this, and communion, um, and laying on of hands for healing, and a blessing, and everyone goes. And so those sorts of bare bones are there before, and they're there after. We just don't know more than that, what might have changed, what might have developed. And maybe there's something to the fact that they, they don't see the sort of ebbs and flows of history, and this plague today, and that problem tomorrow. That doesn't change who we are and what we do. We're we're the same. It, I, I suspect that's probably how they would put it. You know, in working with pastors and talking with churches, you know, I'm trying to, I think we all are, extend a lot of grace to a lot of different interpretations of what we should do right now. And you're kind of, I'm kind of torn at least between wanting to say, we can't go back just exactly the same. We should be learning something through this, particularly about cultural, cultural Christianity. And to me, it's a wonderful thing that we're feeling the lack of, of, as you said, the in-person gathering, the, the tangible, you know, physical smells and bells, all of it, you know, that there's some great value that we're feeling the loss of that and that it's drawing us to a yearning, which feels like waiting deeply for something to come. We know not when feels like a deeply Christian expression, um, a deep thing of faith right now. Um, but also saying, let's don't change so drastically that we lose what is good. There's just that, that balance in there. I think we're striving that um, a lot to be learned and then a lot to be reclaimed with great joy on the other side of this. Um, Brett Gibson asks, um, uh, he's particularly interested in how church mothers and fathers approach Eucharist, especially hermits, anchorises, physically separated from the rest of the church. He's missing the practice sharing Eucharist and wonder early Christianity has any wisdom to share. Yeah. Hey, good to hear from you, Brett. Thanks for the question. Um, the, so the Eucharist would have been, the, the Lord's Supper communion would have been um, held both in homes. And then as soon as we have a, a clear sort of cathedral-like gathering on Sunday morning, distinct from the home, it would have happened every Sunday morning. Um, so it's either happening every day or every day and Sunday. Um, and it was central to uh, how the early Christians expressed their worship. So they, they took very seriously this idea that Jesus says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. I mean, as often as they broke bread together, um, they did it in remembrance of, of the Lord. Um, and so, yes, I think that was something that they more and more came to um, articulate the reverence that goes along with that. It wasn't just, you know, 
a potluck dinner. And by the way, let's remember, I mean, there, there definitely becomes a ritualized expression of that. Um, and that, that seems to be so bedrock and normative that if you go back and read things like The Life of Anthony and uh, Benedict's Rule, which Brett would have had to read for my class, and I'm sure he remembers every word in there, um, you you almost can't find the Eucharist in there just because it's it's so, it's actually not absent. It's like air. No one has to mention it. And so they'll talk about uh, the oblation or the sacrifice or, or or whatever. They'll reference it. And it's happening twice a day in monastic communities later on. Exactly how often they have it early on is less clear because it's just, they assume everybody's doing it. They don't have to explain something like that. Just like you wouldn't have to explain how often you breathe. Um, so yeah, they, they could not imagine uh, a Christian rhythm of life without communion as a steady part of that. So how to translate that today is really, really tough. I mean, I'm with you, Matt, about I want to extend as much grace as possible here. Um, at the same time, I, I, I do think there is a right word of caution about can you, can you um, self-administer the Lord's Supper? I mean, would you self-administer baptism? You know, it, it has been done, for example, by the first Baptist, John Smith, but you're not really supposed to do that. Um, you're, you're, so how to do this? is tough. And that's where, again, it's especially tough uh, on singles, at least in a household. I think we Baptists have a real easy um, approach to this because in the early church, there is a sense of the priesthood of all believers, at least the priesthood of all males. I have to give that caveat that some of our sources are really biased on, on the gender lines, but there is a sense that in every household, they are taking communion on their own. Um, and the father is probably the one administering it, but that's because they are a microcosm of the church. And yet they would never think of themselves as not going back to the main cathedral as soon as they have the opportunity. Um, so communion is exactly that. It's, com it's communing and how to do it singly, how to do it with small group homes, how to, where we want to do it with the whole community. Um, it's tough, but yeah, the early church would emphasize we've got to figure that out because it's something that has to be a daily, regular part of our life. Brent and I were on a call with Dr. Stroop yesterday and some others, and you know, one of the things that was talked about there is a lot of people forming. There were several people that were single on the call that talked about forming a group of 10 or even families of saying, we're going to quarantine or shelter at home with this family or this small group. Um, saying and basically saying like you would commit to my I've committed to my family if one of you gets sick we're all probably going to get sick we're going to do this together forming that sort which is somewhat what we're talking about of yeah. finding ways to commit to one another in smaller while protecting greater society as best we can also fulfilling the needs of family the needs for socialization for care uh, shared resources all of that which feels like maybe part of an answer of finding ways to, to do some of that. Yeah, right. That's where I think, I, you know, I, I've, I know I keep harping on the celibate versus family sort of dichotomy, but it doesn't have to be as if these live in separate worlds altogether. And that's where I think the home, I don't know if, if we'll learn from this how to do home church, but I think every church is going to do better about home and church, whether it's people who live singly in a home and need better connection, or whether it's people who do home well and need to be sponsors for others. Like, I mean, we already have home groups and life groups. I, I think that's one of the things that will, the, the house to house model is going to be something we have to retrieve after this, even if we're all perfectly safe and healthy and vaccinated again. 
I think there's going to be something that we did learn and we did value out of all of this. And again, that's where I do think the early church has some good principles. Yeah, particularly, I think none of us can say that our church is dependent upon programs any longer. I mean, we've all kind of been given, if we wanted to break free from programs, we kind of have a get out of jail free card of saying, look, church is being the church in powerful ways. Um, and we don't need programs are still wonderful. There's a lot of value to programs, but we can free our people to do some of these other things. Um, Tiffany Harris, um, to keep up a, a day spring theme of our question asking, um, so, you know, how do we, how can we be protective of the community without becoming insular? Some of the new monastic movements seem to be a retreat, uh, which many monastic movements have been, and balance that. How do we stay engaged with those who have no hope in Christ in order to extend the hope of Christ? Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, good to hear from you too, Tiffany. Thanks for the question. Um, yeah, that's where I, I, I was I, I like talking about new monasticism, but as soon as you do, some people label it one thing and some people label it another. Um, Rod Dreher's book, The Benedictine Option, um, is a wonderful diagno um, yeah, diagnosis of the problem. I think it's a terrible prescription for the solution. So I typically don't recommend that book because of the, ins I think it's too insular looking, as, as you say, is, is a real risk of some forms of new monastic movement. Um, but at the same time, you could risk a sort of like, um, you, you could risk this idea that the church becomes such a social justice issue. And I know Tiffany wouldn't be saying this, but there are those who, who fear the opposite, that if, if you're, if all you hear out of Shane Claiborne is let's march and you almost don't need a Christian um, gospel message about Jesus Christ to march, you just need to march because this is what good people do. The United Way could be behind all of this. I mean, so. I think both sides of that spectrum need each other. And I think that the new monastic movement is trying to reclaim the principle from Acts 2 through 4 that we should share all things in common, we should be a light to the nations, um, and how to do both while also having a full-time job and worrying about retirement and family and healthcare is really, really tough for average Christians. And so, yeah, how to retrieve that is what the real debate, I think, centers around. Um, Jeff Davidson, uh, and, you know, I think a lot of us are hearing this, particularly those that either grew up in or, or walk in more conservative circles. There's a lot of loud talk about the origin, nature, blame for the coronavirus, a lot of misinformation out there. Um, how did the early church talk about plagues they experienced? Any reading you can recommend? I mean, were they blamed? Were they casting blame? Were they seeing this as a judgment? How did they sit under as this was happening and make it through? Any, and then he asked, any reading you can recommend on early church era plagues? Um, all right, so let's see. The, um, the, the plague reading that I remember looking at are really, really boring medical history kind of books. There's one really good article by um, Rodney Stark that, again, I, um, I could find that for you. And if you'd like, maybe post that as a bibliography or something and follow up to this. Um, the, so the reading question is a bit tricky. Uh, you can find a few sort of pop level articles if you just Google this, but those are hit or miss as to how reliable they are. And then back to the part about sort of comparing the, well, there was a lot in that question. Um, so thanks, Jeff, for the, uh, the question and roll tide and um, the, the, the kind of 
where to begin with this one? So the early church and all ancient thinkers, all ancient people, believe that God, if you're Christian, or the gods are behind all natural causes. So when plague hits, everyone wonders, the pagans wonder, why are the gods mad at us, or who are they mad at? And the pagans were real quick to say, oh, they must be mad at the Christians, and they brought this on. So let's, first, let's blame the Christians. The Christians can play uh, that game just as well. Uh, the Christians also believe that all things are caused by God, or at least ultimately in God's control. And so if this plague is coming about, um, Cyprian said, this is God's judgment on the pagans, and this is a test for the Christians. So you see, we Christians are passing the test with flying colors. And it's true, some of us die, but we're not afraid to die. You pagans, you're, you're failing this test. You're not caring for your loved ones, and you're still dying. Um, so yeah, they could easily blame God or the gods. Um, and how we want to understand God's will at work and natural causes is greatly problematized by how we understand science and all of this. But at the same time, God, God is sovereign. God does let things happen. And so it is permissible to ask, what is God wanting of us in response for this? I don't think God's wanting us to do uh, disinformation campaigns. I don't think God is wanting us to call things fake news and then listen to all the fake news and just side with our party and defend whoever said it because they're in our party. I mean, um, yeah, there's a lot of sad things going on in response to this. And if we could get back to the golden rule, um, I think that would help us sort through a lot of this. That's helpful. Um, last question. Uh, Eric Howe, kind of following up on, on uh, Brett's Eucharistic question, um, can you say more about the distinction slash convergence in the early church between eating a meal reverently and Eucharist? How blurred is that line for them? Yeah, thanks, Pastor Eric. Great question. Um, so... In the first century, maybe two centuries, almost every time you hear a reference to Eucharist, you can assume it's an agape meal. And most of the time it's explicitly an agape meal. So they're having a real meal together. They're sitting around some sort of a dining room, house to house kind of group. I mean, kind of like what Matt was describing, like a few families have networked together, probably one patron who becomes a bishop-like figure, um, and then a, 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 the immediate family and the client families. And so when you have this meal, um, every meal in the ancient world is sacred. And for Christians, it's especially sacred because you stop and remember Christ's body and blood that was broken and shed for us. And so how exactly that was articulated early on, we wish we knew more clearly. We just knew that they do it. Later, we start to get more and more of the specific prayers uh, articulated for, for us and sort of the, the rituals that were involved. And so um, it's an evolution, and I wish I, you know, I had more, more flesh to put on that for you. Paul Bradshaw's work uh, are, are the best to read on this because he really pins down what the evidence does and does not allow you to say. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always haunted by the sort of scholars who are going to say, well, you can't prove this and you can't prove that. We wish we knew more of exactly how that looked. But we do know they talk about it that way, that the family is having an agape meal, the family is calling it uh, Eucharist, the family is able in their home to do this, and it becomes important that the whole community, when possible, gather at the cathedral under the bishop and have one, and then it's not an agape meal, then it is 
the bread and the cup, and it's still as important. So there's more of the ritual that makes it important, less the community. But those two things aren't diametrically opposed. They're, they're two poles of one uh, of a process. All right. David, thank you for your time, man. We appreciate you uh, preparing for this and joining with us. You know, to think that we had the same haircut when this first began is just wild for me to think about. But <laughs> I looked like you before self-quarantine, but my yeah, barber right. didn't see him. So <laughs> the um, uh, did post some some uh, Julie posted some uh, some books there and some different things in the comments. And uh, if you want to share some of this later, David, we can put it also uh, in there. We'll post this to YouTube later on. Um, as a final blessing or word of encouragement, anything to share with those watching today? Yeah, if you don't mind, I thought I would read something from uh, Cyprian's work that's in response to the, that plague. Um, this is from the work entitled On Mortality. And he, he's, I, keep in mind as I read this, this is about a paragraph, but it's not too long. Um, he's talking to people who have lost loved ones to the plague, but also people who are... Um, risking their lives to help others and risking their lives because of persecution. And so to the title of the work is on mortality, kind of a gloomy subject, but uh, I, I, I think you'll appreciate how he ends. Um, so he closes with this. He says, we should consider dearly beloved. We should ever and ever reflect that we have renounced the world and we are in the meantime living here as guests and strangers. Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home and the day which snatches us from there. For that day restores us to paradise and to the kingdom. Who that has been placed in a foreign land would not hasten to return to his own country? We regard paradise as our country, and we already begin to consider the patriarchs as our parents. And why do we not hasten and run that we may behold our country and that we may greet our parents? There a great number of our dear ones is awaiting us, and a dense crowd of parents, brothers, children is longing for us already assured of their own safety and still solicitous for ours. To attain to their presence and their embrace, what a gladness both for them and for us in common. What a pleasure is there in the heavenly kingdom, without fear for death, and how lofty a perpetual happiness with eternity of living. There the glorious company of the apostles, there the host of rejoicing prophets, there the innumerable multitude of martyrs, crowned with the victory for their struggle and passion, there the triumphant virgins who subdued the lust of the flesh and of the body by the strength of their countenance. There merciful men are rewarded, who by feeding and helping the poor have done the works of righteousness and have kept the Lord's precepts and have transferred their earthly inheritance to their heavenly treasuries. To these, beloved brethren, let us haste with an eager desire and let us crave quickly to be with them and quickly for Christ to come. May God behold this our eager desire and may the Lord Christ look upon this purpose of our mind in faith. He who will give larger rewards of his glory to those who desires in respect himself and were greater. Amen. That's a good word, friend. Thanks again for your time. We appreciate it very much. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you soon. Have a good day. Thank you, Matt.